Hello and welcome to Affable Chat. My name is Benjamin and this is my co-host Joey. Hey, how's it going? And today we're talking about hypernormalization. We live in a strange time. Extraordinary events keep happening that undermine the stability of our world. Suicide bombs, waves of refugees, Donald Trump, Vladimir Putin, even Brexit. Yet those in control seem unable to deal with them. No one has any vision of a different or a better kind of future. This is a trippy historical documentary directed by Adam Curtis. The cast includes Donald Trump, Bashar al-Assad, Muammar al-Gaddafi, Henry Kissinger, Vladimir Putin, Obama, last, last name? Do you have a last name? <laughs> I don't know his last name. Let's move on. <laughs> Ronald Reagan, uh, Hafaz uh, al-Hassad, Nick Cage, and Sean Connery. Did I mess up Hassad's name too? Yeah, it's, I think it's Hafez. Hafez al-Hassad? Yeah. Listen, you know, I watched this movie <laughs> what seems like three weeks ago, this, <laughs> but that was actually Wednesday. This movie took me three weeks to watch. I, uh, no, I mean, it, it, it's, they're difficult names. Uh, well, actually, um, I watched this on uh, watchdocumentaries.com. Uh, which I, I watched this on YouTube, yeah. actually. Well, I, I had never been to watchdocumentaries.com, but when I Googled no, hyper-normalization full like, video or full movie, it was like the third result yeah. and it was actually really good the how what quality was it on youtube what was the it was it was good it's like it's it's hard to say exactly because the whole thing is archival footage you know so it's all footage from like you know not recent so yeah. like all of it doesn't look as crisp as you would expect from something made today but um that's kind of on purpose Right, but when you so, when you click the little gear at the bottom right, what did it say it was in? Because I found a video oh, on YouTube check. that was on 360p, and I was like, I'm not watching something in 360p. In There's like uh, there was a bunch of them. I mean, okay. uploaded. The one I watched had the most views, and so I kind of trusted that it was pretty high quality. Right. And I didn't have any trouble with it coming through my Chromecast. So okay, well, the WatchDocumentaries.com was a very good quality, and um, I think it's just like an online database for documentaries that are like public domain, uh, which I thought was yeah. really cool that that even. I think exists. I watched that our uh, that uh, banana like Shakita banana um, documentary on there actually. Yeah, so check them so. out if you want to. But Joey, why don't you give us the synopsis for hypernormalization so people know what it's about? <sighs> okay, <laughs> <laughs> how to describe this movie? Hypernormalization is a documentary made by the filmmaker Adam Curtis. It uses historical events to shape a narrative that we live in what Curtis calls an age of hypernormalization. Hypernormalization is the process of exchanging reality for a simpler version of reality. The forces that guide this process are both vast, powerful, and somewhat unaware they are doing this. The problem is the world is too complicated to understand, so we need simpler versions of the world in order to make sense of it. This comes at the cost of truth. Curtis comes at this idea from several unique angles. In some ways, this is a film about history, but it is a history through a certain lens told for a purpose. Some of the things that are explored are the United States' role in the Middle East, specifically its relationship with Syria and Libya, the rise of individualism, the creation and use of the internet, and the increased importance of suicide bombing as a political ta tactic. 
All of these form this complex web of competing interests and complex political strategy that Curtis uses to frame the current moment. Well, really, Donald Trump's successful political campaign in 2016. This conclusion, the conclusion we're left with, is uh, we live in a post-truth world where reality is not as important as image, and that image is being uh, perpetuated by people in power to control us. I think that's, for a two-hour, 45-minute-long documentary, I think that's as succinct as you can possibly be uh, in some, summing yeah. it all up. I mean, I could tell you everything that happens, but it would not make more, sen- more sense. Right. <laughs> Uh, well, okay, let's let's get right into it. Let's talk about our pros and our cons. What did you like about hypernormalization? I think it was very interesting and very engaging throughout. It told old stories from a pretty new perspective and reframed world events in a new light. And I think it's radical and bold, and it's exactly the kind of like mind-melting thing I'm looking for from something like this. What about you? I agree. It was interesting. I it was the audio and visual experience was really stimulating. I, I felt like it was never boring during this whole thing. It covered important world events that uh, you, some of them. Yeah, I'm such a like public American public education Andy because there's all these things that obviously happen, <laughs> and I and I'm like, what that happened? You know, so that American I mean, public education like. <laughs> Like you go around like just watching American public education. Okay, that's no. I'm just a representative of what it is. You're just like part of that. Yeah. Because I made I made all A's in history. I crushed it, and I still Mm -hmm. feel like I'm such a numbskull when it comes to actual history. I mean, it was yeah. Me too. I don't. Yeah. A lot of these things, like I had heard of people, but I didn't know the details of it. Right. And um, so, anyways, it it covers important world events, which I think is, uh, you know a pro in and of itself. It has a linear structure, which makes it easy to follow when you're covering a multitude of topics. It's entry level to a extent like you can have, you don't have to have a lot of prior knowledge about these world events for you to get the context. Uh, And it's also extremely relevant currently in this, in this current moment. Uh, So I thought all that stuff was good. Uh, So what about cons, Joy? What did you not like about hypernormalization? It's long. It's so long. <laughs> it's 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 crazy how long it is. And like I I still stand by. It is engaging. It's very interesting. I like what you said, where it's really stimulating. It it's not not really boring, but it feels so long. Like it, there's movies that are long, right? And then there's movies that feel long. And this is both. <laughs> really, I I actually I kind of disagree because it, it, it's unstop like it's so long that you you're gonna be like i have to go to the bathroom during this stretch of time or like i i have to eat something uh, or yeah. something like that like it's it's unavoidable how long it is but i honestly i thought it was uh, pretty good throughout i couldn't imagine it being shorter right well i just like he, he moves between topics so much right and he's covering a, such a wide array of things I mean, there's no other way to tell the story right and, but i still feel like it lingers on these like inconsequential shots like all of like that one moment right before he talks about 9-11 where he plays the clips of different disaster movies and people looking at the sky it's like okay like you know you don't have to show six different pictures like parts of independence day we get the freaking idea like <laughs> you know so uh, I don't know. It, I think it's a little obscure in its choice of images, 
um, because it's 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 trying to hit you so hard so fast that you're not you don't have time to be like oh I understand the metaphor he's trying to do here right there's no time for that <laughs> it's like nah man you're you're going into the future with this kind of information and we're blasting you there at the speed of light so you know either strap in or you know fall behind so um, and, and there's a couple of things like that like, I guess impressed me which is like how does he have footage of this. You know, oh, yeah. like there's that whole part where he, where that woman is typing on the computer, which like he could have recreated, right? But like, it's like the perfect, like it's the perfect analog, and he frames it so perfectly, and it draws you in so perfectly. It must have been made for some other thing that he like just kind of co-opted, I guess. But like, it, all the time, I'm like, how does he have? Like, he has, he has, a, he has a footage of everything, everything he's talking about. It is amazing. Um, and of course, the question you always have to ask every time you watch a documentary, how much of this is true? Yes. Can I believe this? Yeah. And I'll springboard off of that because obviously you have to, that's always a con of the documentary. You can't avoid the creator's like biases and narrative. Uh, so that's, you, you got to watch out for that. Also, one thing I thought that, I don't know, was kind of troubling was the assertion of feelings and or opinions where you would just, sometimes you would hear a quote from somebody actually expressing a certain idea that kind of goes along with that. But sometimes the narrator is just like, Assad wanted this and right. now he knew he would never have it. It's like, all right, did he, how do you know? <laughs> you know, like that, you're kind of, yeah. you're kind of simplifying a, a, a something just so it can go along with your narrative. So you, like, I feel like that can be somewhat problematic and also the ambiguous ending although i feel like you can have an out there because they're like history ended at this point we mm. made the documentary so what are we supposed to do have like a, an ending for history this is you know that's just where the documentary ends but i did i was watching this whole time kind of feeling a little bit hopeless <laughs> and then hoping that by the end there would be some sort of message or a call to action and uh it was never it never uh, materialized Maybe that's not the point, but yeah. I uh, it did f it made the ending feel a little bit hollow to me. Uh, and maybe we can discuss that in our overall section as we get into that right now. Okay, this is such a weird movie for us. Um, if you've been listening to our off-script episodes, then you may understand why I chose this movie. This is another step into the world of alternate realities that I've kind of been diving into. Um, like the Society of the Spectacle and QAnon, hypernormalization causes the ground to shift from beneath your feet and confront that the world view, your worldview may be completely constructed or of something other than reality. The central idea of hypernormalization, the movie and the concept, is that there is no simple solutions. And anyone pitching a simple solution is trying to control you somehow. Saying, these are the bad guys, we need to stop them, is not a take based in reality. It's a small slice meant to simplify a world that becomes more and more complicated every single day. The documentary is interesting because it reframes recent history in a new light. It puts emphasis on events that we never talk about and... Uh, uses archival footage to make an interesting point about the world. I have to admit that I really don't have a good grasp of the conflicts in the Middle East or really kind of history in general. And I don't feel like I know enough to say whether the framing of the events is fair or not. Uh, but through this lens, it gave me a perspective about what is at stake and how we got to where we are today. And I do feel like there's a lot of, I mean, looking at just reviews and stuff uh, of this movie, people seem to agree that events happen the way that he frames them. He's just not, um, 
uh, people aren't drawing the same conclusion necessarily. Sure. But even, uh, yeah, I I do like the way that he lined up the information because I'm with you. I look at the Middle East as like this chaos zone where there's been there's so many players so many Mm -hmm. uh you know huge events that happen it's hard to keep them keep track of all that and understand who's doing what and i i feel like the way it's organized in this documentary at the very least makes it consumable it's something that's easy uh to keep track of throughout the two hour 45 minutes that you have to for this film right and i mean when you say that like it becomes clear that like that idea of like the Middle East is kind of this black box of like impossible, like complexity, right? Is part of that narrative, right? It's it's a way for you to not engage with it. Or if everyone just says it's too complicated, and as soon as you start talking about it, it clearly becomes that's like aware, like clear that that's true. Um, it it's a way for you to just trust the narrative, right? Which is exactly kind of the point of this, right? It's like, and and he's fighting that by giving you. An idea of what's going on, maybe it's not as detailed as uh, you know as reality, the truth, right? <laughs> yeah. But it's it's at least gives you uh, an idea of it. I did see something that said that uh, Curtis like treats its uh, treats his viewers with respect, which I I definitely felt like he doesn't go in there saying hey dummies like hey americans never know anything about uh uh, the middle east so let me give you the rundown of it he just kind of dives into it and explains things like very clearly and you know pretty succinctly so that gives you like this um it gives you the the ability to engage with this without ever feeling like he's talking down to you right yeah like he kind of assumes you know because again being an american education andy over here like i like there's it's pretty bad with world geography. Like it's tough. Uh, and, and, but he kind of assumes you're like a citizen of the world. You know, these countries exist, you know, they have leaders, uh, and you can go from there. You know, he doesn't treat you. He treats you like you have some intelligence. Yes. Um, so some criticism of this, although flashy and with lots of interesting images, there are many moments where it's, it's really not clear if the images on screen match the messaging of the movie. Relying completely on archival footage without bringing in experts for conducting interviews gives this movie more of a historical feel, but it's certainly trying to convince you of something. Also, the concept of hypernormalization sort of collapses on itself because it claims to be the underlying or overarching theme of the last 45 years, but it also says that such simplicity does not exist. So, and by encouraging a questioning of the proposed narrative, it puts itself directly in the line of fire. It is sort of a snake that ends up eating itself. I so, think that's you're like, very, yeah, that's good. That's good. Because that's exactly uh, what's happening. Because just by pro- pro- like proposing this question or saying, like, yes. watch out for hypernormalization, it makes almost any simplification of anything uh, qu- questionable. Yes, including the concept of hypernormalization. So it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit uh, thorny, I guess. But I, I, think, I think you could move past that in a way, right? As long as you're kind of aware of what you're doing. It, it, but like this is something that my brother says about um like uh like like communist thinkers or anyone who reads marx like marx set like encourages people to question like their kind of proposed narrative and stuff and so the first thing that anyone does when they read marx is criticize marx because mm. he's encouraging that so it's like it's just a uh, a classic problem that you have with of like narratives like this where you're like you can't trust what people are telling you it's like oh really well why should i trust you then <laughs> like you're listening to me right now you don't understand <laughs> anyway also the last thing is that it is really long and it feels long to me 
and um i think you're um i think you're right that like if you go into it expecting to take a break in the middle like have an intermission or something you're a little bit you're you're gonna digest it a little bit better but like honestly like you sit you're sitting through it and you're like oh my gosh like this is crazy all this stuff that he's talking about and he's like oh you're only halfway there you're like we're we got so much more yes. to cover here no you know? I, I it took me we barely got anywhere it took me all day to watch this like i i, I because i'm sitting <laughs> there i'm taking notes there are some yeah. things where i'm like you know who are who's hamas so now i have to go google hamas and, and find out who that is and and uh, do stuff like that so it took me to watch a two-hour 45-minute movie it probably took me closer to five hours uh yeah. to actually get through the entire thing including breaking for lunch <laughs> <laughs> that's crazy uh but it was good i mean i don't want to say that i didn't enjoy that process but it is it is kind of a uh, a slog for lack of slog. Uh, a lack of better words i think stuff like this is really interesting and important um in a way it says you can't trust anything uh it's all pointless lies which is pretty nihilistic uh but that's not i don't think that's what this t the tone of this film is um it's trying desperately to convince you that things are not as they seem and that things can actually change one of the main themes of this is like this narrative of stability um that you know, and this is kind of true with the society spectacle too it's like it erases history it says uh everything has been this way always and this is how it should be and there's no reason why we should change that um but like realizing that we're always kind of everything's kind of collapsing always and people are just constantly building it back up it's kind of an important reframing it makes you it makes you realize that like this idea that nothing ever changes or like we're always going to have things the way they are is not true things change all the time um and that means things could change for the better well i think that's a i'm glad that you came away with that because that's kind of reassuring because my first reaction as soon as this documentary ended was what on earth am I supposed to do with all this information? Like, all, I learned that everything is a lie and all the crazy shit that's happening right now is actually the logical next steps in a series of horrific <laughs> events that began well before I was born. Uh, and we're past the point of no return and there's nothing we can do about it, which I think that last part is a little bit more nihilistic than it, than it is intended to be. But I just had this feeling of almost panic uh, when I completed this, which I think... It is kind of intended based on the way that this documentary is uh, create, like uh, put together. From a filmmaking perspective, I think this is a very well-made documentary. Like at first, first glance, it's, you know, you're like, eh, this is too long, you know. But <laughs> by the time I finished it, I could have sat through 45 more minutes uh, if it had continued to go on to further in history. You know, obviously this was made mm -hmm. in 2016, so that's where they end history. But uh, I would love to see this exact same format go on to cover uh, the Trump administration and uh, like leading up to and including the insurrection at the Capitol and Trump being banned on Twitter. Like those things fit with the narratives he's already talking about, which is kind yes. of mind blowing that it's like he, he picked the things that, I mean, they're obviously important, but they continue to be at the forefront of like the you know most important narratives that we're, we're paying attention to that are affecting our lives. And um, honestly, just talking about the format of this documentary, I think this would best exist as some sort of a series of episodes that are about an hour in length each, uh, kind mm -hmm. of like the Michael Jordan Last Dance documentary, but way more unsettling. Uh, but but <laughs> that, would, that would give you an opportunity to explore these ideas. Like you could jump between some of the main threads in each episode covering a 
covering it bit by bit uh and then right. you could build up through a series of episodes and really go even more in depth i, I think that that probably would have been a better way to do this instead of because two hour 45 minutes that's barrier for entry that is going to keep a lot of people out unfortunately despite you know how good this documentary is because even though this documentary was extremely long i never got bored uh like the, the subject matter is incredibly consequential the video like visual and audio experience is stimulating throughout so many times like you said earlier i wondered how on earth did he get this footage like, this is insane <laughs> some of the stuff that we saw uh like it, it was like how did somebody know to be filming during this consequential thing that nobody knew was going to be consequential yet uh and the way that the organ information is organized was really consumable as well uh, you know, it's it's mostly linear and focuses on a handful of subjects as we move through 1975 to 2016. Uh, and you jump between those subjects so it stays fresh. Like you're never stagnating on, on one particular thing. Uh, but also it doesn't spread itself so thin that you lose track of what the documentary is trying to say. Uh, so it was really well done and dare I say fun to watch. <laughs> yeah. Like <laughs> I dare dare I say because it's it's like really... Uh, the stuff you're watching is kind of horrifying, but it's just it's in engaging uh, the way that it, it, it was put together. Uh, like I, I felt like this documentary, and I, I, in addition to that, I felt like this documentary was fairly ambitious in an avant-garde way, allowing mm -hmm. itself to linger on some random shots, playing unsettling and strange noises to set a mood throughout the film. It feels artsy without being completely self-indulgent. This is the type of I feel like watching this documentary, I saw in this film, like the, the artistic nature and like the artistic value that real museum curators see in those total bullshit, like <laughs> random <laughs> shots of nothingness that actually get played in museums where it's just yeah. completely unwatchable to someone who hasn't had like a doctorate in, in art appreciation. Uh, this to me reaches that height of art where it's like, Oh, that's kind of a strange shot and weird noises, but it all works together. You know, this yeah. might not be for everybody, but boy, is it working for me? So I, uh, I, I got to give it high praise for that. I mean, just what a, what a well put together documentary. Where did you hear about hypernormalization, by the way? I heard about it on the Q and anonymous podcast, which I was binging and they mentioned it kind of offhand as like uh, something that was really engaging and interesting. Yeah. Um, and Adam Curtis in general. So I decided we'd check it out. So yeah, all of this kind of comes from the same place in a way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, it definitely fits with kind of the conversations we've been having, but also yeah. like what a solid recommendation because I had never heard of this, but the quality is so apparent that I, uh, I was really glad that I had gotten it recommended to me by I'm, you. I'm happy to hear that. I did not expect you. I thought you'd be annoyed. So <laughs> I was pissed when I first opened it up and saw it's two hours and 45 minutes. I was like, Joey, I have a life. As soon as I saw that, as soon as I saw that, I was like, I'm not telling him that. Yeah. He's going to be mad. Yes, I was furious. I was steaming. But once I started watching it, I realized, I was like, this is amazing. and This is good. So I, uh, that's why, you know, if, if I've learned anything from all these movies we've reviewed is you absolutely cannot judge a movie until you've seen it. And that, uh, yeah. this is no exception. Uh, but really what this documentary does is it fills me with an unsettling feeling of dread that I, it, like it's so hard for me just as an individual to help push towards solutions because it's impossible for me or so unlikely for me to, to know if I even have a grasp on the reality of how things really are. Like, I, right. I, I'm afraid that everything I believe is just some narrative I've been fed by the powers that be to distract me from ever being capable of rocking the boat or upsetting the current 
order. By the end of this documentary, I was so skeptical that I wasn't sure I could even believe anything the documentary had told me. And this is kind of an idea we've gone over already, uh, which is such a mind-melting uh, mental exercise to be being told to be skeptical and then becoming skeptical of the person telling you to be skeptical. Uh, one thing, and we kind of cover this as well, but like I, one thing that I, I do have to criticize again is that I felt like the narrator was asserting a lot of feelings and opinions throughout this, especially when it comes to subjects I don't know very much about, like presidents that were president before I was born, like talking about things that Reagan believed or felt, and also these Middle Eastern leaders where, again, I, I don't have a breadth of knowledge there, so I can't contest anything he says. Uh, so I, that kind of stuff, it's, it's tough to know if I'm being led astray. Uh, and mm. I think that the answer to that is not necessarily to change the documentary. It's that I, as the viewer, need to become more informed and, and learn more about those subjects on my own to have kind of a resistance to false narratives. Yeah, for sure. And it is, I mean... That's exactly it. It's not like he's setting sources necessarily. I mean, he has like, you know, there's a credits and stuff, but it's, it's hard to know like how he knows this, right? Yeah. Well, I, I thought it was enlightening. In any, in any quit, any cl- quote or clip you have is going to be, have context that's missing, you know? Yeah. So. Well, and I thought it was enlightening that you said earlier, you pointed out that there's no, like, they don't cut to interviews with anybody who's being interviewed for this documentary. And I think right. that's, that's kind of different from a lot of documentaries I've seen. Yeah, it is different. I mean, it's a, I think it's definitely a style choice. It's, but it's like, it lends itself to reframing old pictures and stuff. You, you're looking at old things and you're like, oh, like, this is, a, this is what they meant by this, or this is the consequences of that. Oh, this know? is what the you're, internet looked like in the 80s. <laughs> oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> Cyberspace. Cyberspace. You had all those, like, all those, like uh, what was it? It was just like weird like uh, digital landscapes that people had made, I guess, that were always like flying through. That was always so strange. And Tron, yeah. the same clips from Tron. <laughs> oh yeah, the same Tron, clips from Tron twice. I was like, I've seen this already. I know what this is. <laughs> anyway, so... There's a lot of things that this movie covers, so let's uh, let's talk about those. And I think that's what we're going to do for the rest of this podcast yeah. is kind of discuss some of the things we want to discuss. The um, first thing I want to talk about is individualism. Um, so the first thing, one of the first things that uh, Curtis talks about is how the world be, like sh- shifts from an, an emphasis on collective action to uh, an emphasis on um, self-expression and it stops becoming like what group uh people do you belong to or what do you think is a betterment for society that you can work toward and it became more of what are you what are you individually going to contribute like what is your mark on the world you know what is your purpose what kind of person are you kind of thing um he gives like a bunch of different examples but i think it's very interesting um because i think this is something that I think everyone in America is caught up in is this idea that like you need to be something, you need to do something that really matters, you know, something that's going to make the world better or just different. You know, it's so important that you become a great person in any way that that means. Right. So, um, but like inherently individualism is so fractured and as people, we are not, very good at being very focused on things. 
that you can't really do anything on your own. You have to have people behind you. And there are people that like gather cults of personality or achieve a lot on their own simply because people become kind of obsessed with them. But even then, it's still this collective action behind them that ends up driving that towards some sort of success. People simply on their own acting individually don't really achieve uh, you know, greatness by themselves, basically. Um, but what's even more interesting, I think, about this is that it extends this idea of self-expression or like being your own thing extends to countries as well. And that's kind of what, uh, uh, what happens in the Middle East. There's this splinter between all of these different um, countries. Assad was originally going to try to create kind of another superpower by um, combining the efforts of all the different uh, Middle Eastern countries into kind of a, a, some sort of collective, like a EU or something, or a Soviet Union. Um, and Kissinger came in and sabotaged that, and then they basically never recovered. And from then on, like there was this kind of idea that we're all in this, we're all, we're not all in this together. We're all in it for ourselves, and we can't work together effectively. There's no way we could ever put aside our differences. It's always going to be us versus them, or some sort of conflict or something. Um, and you know that, con that contributes to un instability today. And I mean that goes to the United States with America first and like American exceptionalism. This idea that we are the city on the hill and there's no one else like us, and uh, you know nobody should even come close to touching us. And anybody who has any ideas or anything valuable, we're going to take it for ourselves. You know, um, and tell everyone that it was that that they're dumb for some reason. God chose uh, us, man. God told, said that he wanted us to be the world police. I think that was uh, what his words yes, were. Yes, uh, that's right. Uh, be quietly, hold a big stick. Um, Brexit as well is a, another expression of this, of uh, the UK kind of saying we can do it better by ourselves. Like we don't being part of a group is uh, wor making us worse. The Soviet Union splitting up, same thing. Um, th there was something that like had benefited uh, Russia for such a long time and, and in some ways benefited the other countries as well and made certain people very powerful. But um, it, it just collapsed on itself and it became more important that these countries were individuals and that they worked together. Um, but I think, that's, I think that's fascinating, especially since it's such a useful political tactic because if, you can't, if people don't, don't know how to like, collectivize and don't know how to unionize, don't know how to uh, work together, then there's... They're, they can't do anything. They're always going to be arguing about what the best way forward is because they always think that they're right and everyone else is wrong. Yeah, it was, it was interesting because um, one of the things that I feel like they could have covered was like rugged individualism and this idea. It, it, this was more focused on just American culture uh, to talk about how, it, you know, we kind of encourage rugged individualism here where you have to work the hardest and take care of you and forget about everybody else. Uh, it, your own success relies purely on you, you alone. And you also, you shouldn't be helping other people because you could be helping yourself. You know, you, that is, that is the way forward in our society. That's like a, that's such like a Jordan Peterson take, I, I think, uh, uh, like, which is like this idea that, um, you can't help anyone until you help yourself. Right. Yeah. Right. Like, like, who are you to try to fix society when you can't even get out of bed on time or, you know, eat three meals a day or something? Right. You or, need to or clean, clean your, your room. room. Yeah. Right. You know, because then you'll be a better person. But like Jordan Peterson is evidence of this itself. Like that doesn't 
it means nothing. Yeah. Like <laughs> you can be a, you can be a really terrible person uh, for yourself or really like it, like irresponsible and still do really good things or really great things or really terrible things. Um, and th this idea that like you have to look out for yourself first, it's true because you're always stuck with yourself, but like, if you help work to benefit other people, you're also working to benefit yourself. Um, True. And that's like a, that's like a, that's not something that we think about, I think, in, in America. Well, because we go so far towards rugged individualism that we're willing to do something that is harmful to ourselves in the name of rugged individualism. Where people, yes. like for instance, people who are saying we don't want the government to give us money to help us deal with the pandemic because that's a handout right. and that's bad. That's inherently bad. Even though we have the resources to give Americans money to help them survive what is totally not their fault, a global pandemic, there are still people who are so committed to rugged individualism that they look at that as a negative thing because oh that's going to teach you that uh you don't need to to do everything on your own and that's going to cause the downfall of society or, or something i mean that's a extrapolation but still yeah there's people who are so committed to this idea of being an individual that any collective action is seen as just an inherent negative which i think uh yeah it's really frustrating definitely and it's i mean it's just interesting that because you start thinking about how like our society reflects how we view ourselves right and if you if if you start thinking about yourself as only an individual then you're not going to start thinking about how other people could work together or how other entities could work together right it's always you versus them um it's never like what can what can we do to help each other right you're and, also and that's like yeah, well, ahead. you're going to lose to collective action. You know, when you're right. saying it's like, well, I certainly don't want to be part of a union because I'm probably better than most of these other workers, so I can negotiate my own contract. Meanwhile, the company is going to take all of you for a ride because none of you have collective bargaining uh, power, yes. right? Uh, the, the company holds all the cards because they're united against you where you are totally by yourself. Uh, it, and that like, yeah, yeah, that's like a micro example of that same thing, right? Like, the company benefits from their employees not communicating, from them not working together or standing with each other, right? Um, and they will push any narrative to, to perpetuate that, right? Um, and I mean, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, I don't know. Like, it's such a, uh, uh, I don't know, it's such a insidious idea, I guess. And it, it comes... It comes from the top down in some ways, but it's also something that we reinforce ourselves. It's something that we believe about uh, ourselves, that we can do it on our own and we don't need any help. Um, and I think that's like, you know, it's, 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 that, uh, it's that tweet, right? Um, uh, men will blank before they go to therapy yeah. kind of thing. You know, like before <laughs> men will storm the Capitol yep, before they go to therapy. That's <laughs> <laughs> it's good. It's good stuff. Yeah. Uh, but like, it, it's this idea that like, ah, you know, like, I don't need someone else. I can't admit that I'm wrong or, like, that, you know, something like that. But, like, the truth is the only reason why we have succeeded as a species so far is because we work together better than anything else. Because we communicate better and because we look out for each other. Um, and that's, like, a... 
it's a it's a valid evolutionary strategy um and it's helped us achieve all sorts of amazing things so far um and to abandon that at this point is only going to be to our detriment definitely and again it's this hyper there's it, it it's not just individualism uh like you can still be an individual there are certain freedoms that come with that that are beneficial but i think it's like we push too far towards that and and totally reject anything else and which is dangerous and and counterproductive but one thing that you brought up in our individualism discussion talking about henry kissinger's uh, role in the middle east and this was something again maybe we don't have the answers but i just wanted to pose questions to was henry kissinger's involvement in the middle east really that consequential because this documentary kind of sets it up like assad had a plan and he was gonna unite the middle east and he's gonna solve the palestinian question and everything was gonna be cool the, the middle east was gonna be peaceful and united then kissinger comes in and he's he's not going for that he wants to keep them in check he wants to make sure they don't become too powerful because that would upset the status quo and everything kind of devolves from there but I, is that fair hmm I don't know. Like, I, uh, <laughs> well, cause I, I was talking to my dad about this and my dad's obviously older than me. And I was talking to him about Kissinger and he was like, cause my, my dad uh, served in the military and he was talking about how when he was overseas, he always, his entire life felt like the middle East was a total chaos. There was always, yeah. uh, things going on there that made them not united. And, uh, he did, he felt like that was a huge oversimplification to say that Kissinger's role was like, he, prevented what could have been possible peace i'm not not even sure what kissinger did did he like propose something that he that assad couldn't refuse or something well it was the way i understood it was that kissinger and assad were negotiating peace and Mm -hmm. they were trying assad wanted to form some sort of union with all the middle eastern countries and kissinger was like okay we'll work towards that and then he got egypt and Israel to sign a peace agreement that was separate from the rest of the Middle East. Uh, and I then see. he never went further than that. So he did one peace treaty and then left the rest of them out in the cold, which Assad felt like betrayed by. And I love the way that he framed that in the documentary <laughs> because it was like Assad no longer had like a vision of like peace and unity in the Middle East. Assad wanted revenge. And I was like imagining <laughs> like the Photoshop. Have you seen like the punished photoshops on uh like it's from metal gear solid well they'll have like punished uh one of the characters will have have, like a a scar over one eye and an eye Mm. patch and it's like assad after that has like he's he's punished battle damaged assad exactly yeah he's like (laughs) a new character now and he uh he has different motives and and now he just wants chaos and violence as revenge for what kissinger did Uh, i mean like it's uh I think like it's hard to say exactly like, but the, here's the things that are true. the The U.S. is a like a superpower, especially at this time. You know, what they say matters. Even little things they say matter, and will have huge impacts on entire countries uh, just by someone saying the right thing at the right time. And um, going against their wishes or trying to like do anything other than that is risking them coming down with you with a nuke you know like you don't you don't know what they're gonna do because they don't seem to have any sort of uh boundaries i should i said we they we um yeah you're uh, responsible here you're culpable for what we did in the middle east in the 70s joey don't try to get out of this (laughs) (laughs) the uh the other thing is like 
if you ever worked on like a big project, you understand how easily things can get derailed. You know, like if the idea is like, okay, we're this is an ambitious idea, you know, for any anything. Like we're going to unite all these countries that have been in conflict for such a long time. You know, the joke is that like Palestine and, and uh, Israel have been like fighting since Israel existed. You know, like it's just a, it's not a good situation. The idea that you can like unite them in some way is... It, technically probably possible but if you run into any roadblocks it's gonna derail you for a long time and that can make people lose motivation and there's all these other problems you have to worry about at the same time you know it's just a uh um i can see how even the slightest like stumble could derail this entire thing right and um, I, I guess it's it's kind yeah. of the thing where it's like even if you don't take his entire take if you don't believe his entire take on this you can even just say Assad wanted to try to unite. He was pushing towards uni uh, unifying, and then Kissinger was pushing against that, and that that's probably fair enough. Uh, right. That after we saw, see what happens, and the proof that, that it's not it didn't happen is kind of true, like proof that uh, you know, <laughs> it worked in right, a way. Right. Uh, <laughs> well, and then another thing about kind of like the Reagan administration in the Middle East was this. He he has he says that Reagan pulling out of Lebanon basically was leaving the problem to fester and that was another right. one i was wondering is that fair also because what what was having marines in lebanon going to do to solve the middle eastern crisis you know yeah well that's i mean that's kind of our criticism of like the war now is like what are we even doing you know like yeah. are we are we helping or are we like like what exactly are we trying to do and like establishing any sort of um stability over there is such a monumental task yeah. that it's like it's um you know it's like maybe it's just not worth talking about maybe it's not worth uh, like pursuing or something but like um but what's interesting i think about the 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 reagan situation is how easy like how easily spooked the u.s got right um, which brings us to one of the biggest topics of the documentary, which is suicide bombing. Oh yeah. Um, so the idea that the, the idea that uh, Curtis proposes is that there's a suicide bomb attack against uh, America in, um, I guess it was in Syria, um, with 240 Americans dying. Um, oh no, no, in, that was in attack. Lebanon. It was in Lebanon. It was when he, yeah, the suicide they uh they suicide bombed the Marines. Yeah, right. And yeah, it's like two more than two hundred Americans died, and Reagan pulled out, and it was like we can't deal with this right now. And what this did was, uh, according to Curtis, is made suicide bombing a legitimate tactic um, for uh, these countries, and especially like a couple of different. Um, uh, uh organizations yeah that so that was trying so to... the, yeah that was hezbollah that did that right and just like to really quickly kind of he he puts out a timeline of like how suicide bombing came about and he was saying that like iranians had like a type of uh suicide bomb where they they religiously justified the death of all these schoolboys in order to clear a minefield which is just yes insane like that, yes. that the brutality of doing that it, it was organized suicide on a large scale in the name of martyrdom and assad saw that and was like okay that could be really interesting uh and let me right. use that in, in my in my uh like good like things that i my schemes that i'm doing and hezbollah was like this proxy that assad was using to attack america and they were the ones who did this attack on the marines uh and killed over 200 americans 
Right. And over the years, like this kept coming up where there were suicide bomb attacks um, against Americans or American allies. And um, the, the U.S. like couldn't act on it or was afraid to act on it, basically. And they would push that uh, uh, that responsibility on someone else, which we can get to in a minute. But the idea was that suicide bombing became such a a. Uh, like a, almost not a perfect tactic, but such a useful tactic that it became like irresponsible not to use it and to try to escalate it as far as it could go. And what that what he, what he says is that that led up to 9/11 because 9 like the events of 9/11 of planes falling to the towers was really like the ultimate kind of suicide bomb. It was the the next logical step in this process right. of like. Like, how can we kill lots of people by, you know, not but not care about ourselves, basically? Right. Well, and I thought and, it was interesting yeah. that he took the angle of justifying it religiously, because a lot of the actions that are taken by these groups are political, but also religious. And yeah. the way that once they realized how effective suicide bombing was, every religion is able to justify it, even when their religion specifically disallows suicide. They're yes. able to justify it via whatever mental gymnastics they had to perform because they realized how useful it was. Right. Yeah, and that's what's so crazy because there's two, uh, two sects of um, Islam, and one of them was more pro- like had more leniency toward um, suicide bombing. But then the other one, which was explicitly against it, like came around to the idea, basically. It was like, hey, you know... Well, this is so bad, I guess. But like, I don't know. It's so horrific in a way, and it's not something that I guess it's not a tactic that the the U.S. or like the West really um, participates in. Um, so it's, it seems so foreign and, and like barbaric. But that's the that's like part of its power is it's like it's so visceral, you know. And it's like these people hate us so much they're willing to die for it. It's such a useful narrative too, and it's like uh, just the idea that you can like convince someone to end their life for some political cause it feels so like dirty and so, so like wrong it, it's just crazy yeah and it, it, i i also he, he kind of paired that idea with this uh moving beyond politics this post-politics era that we're in when hamas kept sending those suicide bombers into israeli cities like daily just absolutely causing uh total chaos he said it completely destroyed the ability of politics to solve the Palestinian crisis. And I think that is an important point as well. Like this, the use of suicide bombing made traditional problem solving methods obsolete. Although I do want to say something, I do want to say <laughs> yeah. something. This, they definitely give Syria like almost total uh, credit for coming up with suicide bombing, which Japan had suicide like, bombing in world war ii and that's just one example that i can think yeah. of um there's no it's not necessarily a good it's not okay it's not a good idea it's not a it's not a new idea right yeah but it is but this is kind of where it took a turn for being useful politically right and i think that's like that's the important distinction okay is like because he does he does kind of frame it as if like oh no one had ever thought to blow themselves up before <laughs> that's not really the idea the idea is like like now we can use this as a way to get what we want, um, which we never like, which was not available before, I guess. And once you kind of introduce that kind of um, technology or like that kind of tactic, it becomes more viable for everyone. Um, this is something that I've heard people say, like that I've heard uh, Robert Evans say on his Behind the Bastards podcast, is that anytime you introduce a new 
um, weapon of war, you can expect that weapon of war to be used against you. Um, and it's like that's where like people in the like soldiers in the in the who are U.S. soldiers who are in the Middle East like like are so like wary of like drones because they know that eventually it's going to turn around and they're going to be starting they're going to be sending drones toward them or even back at the U.S. Um, and like the idea that you could you are you have a monopoly on some sort of use of like violence uh, is all is only ever temporary. And it eventually will come back to, to get you. Yes. And I'm glad you brought up drones because that is something I feel like they missed in, in this documentary was how involved the United States was with drone striking in the Middle East, especially because this goes through the entire Obama administration. So, yeah, they never they barely he barely mentions Obama at all. Yes, right. And uh, and that's the type of thing where like I was proposing this like 10 part Netflix documentary series that this could be converted into. They would probably yeah. cover it in that because they do show the one scene where they're drone striking Gaddafi and that should be a bigger part of the narrative because drone strikes are um, you know similarly brutal and destructive in the Middle East as suicide bombing and another thing that we kind of like don't necessarily have a solution to where it's kind of like what are you going to do about that you can't how do you fight these drones yeah i mean you got to get better i mean that's the thing is like like there's those big ones right that like you see that are like really big and like remote controlled and then there's those little ones that you can buy on amazon that people have started attaching like little tiny bombs to and then dropping them on people and like those like i mean they're so small compared to like the big ones that it, like and they're pretty fast and maneuverable like they can dodge like shots from the ground so like it, it's and if you send it if you're and they're not that expensive right you could get a whole fleet of them and wipe out like a whole lot of people so easily uh, and even if you're there waiting for them you can only get so many so yeah it's a terrifying it's a terrifying world we're entering into definitely i mean it's also one of the things that the government lies about where they're not really upfront about it's like hey uh we're killing a lot of civilians over here <laughs> using these drone strikes. Like we just kind of get the, Hey, isn't it great that we have drone strikes because our, our troops don't necessarily have to do all this stuff. Uh, it's yeah, it's, it's, I don't know. Asymmetric warfare. Is, yeah. It's but yeah, freaking it's, crazy. Um, yeah. all right. So the next thing I want to talk about, we can get back to the middle East in a little bit. He kind of, he, uh, Curtis kind of jumps between different oh, areas. Yeah. He goes in the linear timeline, but it's like, well, now we're going to go talk about this, and then we're going to go back to, yeah, so what, we can do something similar. Okay. The problem with protests, we, I thought this was so interesting. Um, he talks about the Occupy Wall Street movement and the Arab Spring, and how both of these things were organized using social media in a kind of grand uh, envision of the internet of, as like a great unifier. Um, but the problem was that these things had organized so effectively and yet they had no idea what they were going to do um and they came to this point both of these like movements came to this point where like they just didn't they like were organizing the streets they were getting close to overthrowing whoever they wanted to overthrow but they weren't able to visualize or actualize on what their what the end goal was going to be they just kind of argued in the streets for a while about like what they should do and never really came to pass anything. And in some way, like it fizzled out in a lot of ways. And although there's like, obviously there's, there's nothing quite fizzles out. People that were involved in the Occupy movement are still active today and are more 
uh, like prominent or like useful activists now. But at the time, like they had organized so effectively, but it had not gotten further than that and weren't able to like uh, coalesce around a unifying idea. It, like, he calls it, I think, a revolution without leaders. It's politics without politicians, right? It's just people. Um, but it, it, it's the same problem you have in any kind of like raw democracy, which is like, uh, you know, somebody's talking the loudest. They, they maybe they're the rightest. <laughs> I did like the way that they displayed the human amplifiers, like that yes. repeat each other as a group. I thought that was a really it was a really cool idea and like it really goes along with the whole like we are unionizing we're we're coming together we're all part of this mm-hmm. we're all equal and stuff but yeah it, it seems like it would be a pretty tough way to communicate and get anything done right but it's like it was a kind of an envision of this perfect idea you know like it, it's it became this like it became a symbol for what was going on even more so than it was like a technological thing and it and it was like kind of a IRL version of the internet where anyone could say it something and it would be just as loud as anybody else. Anybody could but, upvote it if they agree with it by adding right. their voice. Yeah. Right. So it became like a, um, so in, in many ways, like it was proof of this concept, but people weren't able to capitalize on it basically. Right. And, and I mean, this is kind of true of the Arab spring to a certain extent, yeah. even though it feels like they got further uh, because of what happened in Egypt, they were able to, plan this like quote-unquote spontaneous uprising which he imagined just being like not online at all on egypt and then seeing all these people come out of nowhere and having no idea how yes. that happened uh but then you know they, they are able to remove the like the leadership and then what yeah. you know and then it falls into chaos uh, and and then they eventually end up welcoming back the leadership that they removed because the power vacuum is filled by something worse Yes. Which really gives you a, a cynical feeling about revolutions. <laughs> yes, it does. Well, that's the thing is like, I mean, uh, CGP Gray talks about that in his Rules for Rulers thing. Like, you can't overthrow a government without the help of the military. And when you overthrow a government, like, what you're really doing is kind of saying, okay, uh, military, you get to decide who is in charge because they have this monopoly on violence, right? And so it becomes this, um, becomes a, like, a, like a, it's like, oh, we're doing something, but you're not really doing something for yourself. You're really benefiting people that hold the keys to power. Um, and I mean, that's exactly, that's exactly what happens here. And it's, and again, it's similar to what happens in the Occupy movement where it becomes so splintered and, um, like people lose their motivation and it becomes, again, it becomes this individualism. We're so used to this individualist uh, society that we aren't able to compromise with each other. We're not used to working with each other and it just becomes kind of a mess. Right. And I also liked how this kind of tied into the narrative of hyper normalization because the, like the simple narrative of the Arab spring is See, people in the Middle East, the problem is the evil leaders who are evil inherently, and right. all the people are, just want 
them to be removed and then democracy will naturally flourish so while this was going on it was easy for people in the you know uh interventionalists in the united states to be like see i told you invading iraq was a good idea it was right because this is what everybody out there actually wants and now they're even doing it for themselves proving how right we were yeah and I think you kind of see you like you. I, my mind has changed about this a little bit, but you kind of see the same thing with the storming of the Capitol that happened this week, where people got in there and then they were like, uh, now, "Now what? what? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like what do we do?" There were uh, there were some people that clearly had some sort of plan. Oh and yes, were were like knew where to go and knew what to do. Um, but they luckily they didn't get very far. Well, but still, yeah. they're like the majority of people. We're like we're going to the capital. Uh, that's and that's as far as it gets, you know. And maybe you're, you're thinking, oh, they didn't expect to get inside, which I w- would expect. You know, that makes sense. I don't think anyone expected them to get inside. But um, still, like, if your idea is just to go out there and shout, um, like, it's not quite enough. You need to. Right. There needs to be like a. If we get to point A, what do we do? You know, like, what do we demand? I mean, this is what you saw like from success from the Hong Kong protesters. They had five demands, right? Um, and they this demands kind of became tied up in like the protest itself, where it's like anyone who participated in the protest shouldn't be uh, like um, indicted. But like, still, they had an idea of what they wanted, and they were very clear about that messaging, and that's why they were able to coalesce for so long and keep things going for so long. Um, ultimately, it ended up kind of like falling apart because of the pandemic but like they were they were very clear about what they were doing and they were up against a really monumental enemy which is like the opposite of what you see here where people were kind of vaguely angry and they're like and they don't know what they want really well, you know what i mean i don't know <laughs> i have, mean i, I think i kind do of know what the people who the insurrectionists at the capitol wanted and there were people with those zip ties uh and weapons like there were people who were planning on taking hostages and I, I don't know this obviously there's no like official mission statement for the insurrection yeah. but there you're, you could imagine that they would potentially want to force congress to uh give trump a second term right so i mean that kind of seemed like that maybe was their mission and it just they were unsuccessful because congress got out of there but uh but i i i think it's still a good example of a lot of people who were just part of the movement and once they got what they wanted they were like okay now what? <laughs> i guess i'll just yeah. tear nancy pelosi's name tag off the door and, and wave it around for the cameras right and that's like the you know, I, I think that you could say the same thing about any of these movements. There are probably people in all those crowds that had a very clear idea of what should happen, but were unable to coalesce a movement around that specific thing. And like, although lots of people were caught up in the move in the moment, they were not like it was not clear what the goal should be or the steps to achieve that goal. Even when you're saying, "Oh, we should have Trump be the president again," right? Um, like, there's. There's got to be some like logistical steps in there that are not outlined clearly, sure. you know, or 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 not clearly defined uh, for by the movement. So, um, let's talk about fake news and especially about Vladislav Surkov. Oh man, um, this guy, the theater guy. <laughs> this guy, this guy's amazing. Oh my um, gosh. <laughs> so Vladislav Surkov is a. Uh, uh, a Russian politician. Um, he's like 
he's not he's not been elected to any any sort of thing but he's been constantly appointed to like various regimes within the russian like um government and he has kind of a, a various roles throughout time and it's like and everything about him is like nebulous there like even his own name he's like writes under a pseudonym and stuff basically his whole goal is to cause chaos and to make people unsure of what's real one of the ways he does that is he supports different um movements like he'll support anti-government movements he'll support pro-government movements he'll support neo-nazis he'll support leftists he'll support whoever and he'll say and the, the, the key to his success is he'll say i supported them and everyone's like what why would he do that you know and then it becomes the narrative becomes like well the government was involved why was the government involved in this? Like, like, is this a real like movement or is this uh, facilitated by something? And they become distracted by the like, the, by the fact that this guy is involved somehow, uh, when in fact, like, and, and it completely ignores the the uh, you know the movement's I, like ideology in itself. It's like, is this a false flag? Is this something that people are just uh, going along with, or is this um, uh, is this a real thing? Yeah. And when you get into this movement where you're like, you're not quite sure, it, it's an excuse not to act, right? You're like, I don't know if I believe that. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to be wrong. You know, I'm not going to risk being wrong. So I'm not going to do anything. Um, and it's, it, it's extremely useful. One of the things that he like pioneered was this idea that like, of like being explicit that the government is corrupt and that there's nothing you can do about it. You know, it's like, it like, it's it's beyond even uh saying like this idea in the US that we have about like how um we understand that the government has a certain amount of corruption and it's just kind of a natural part of government and it's something that like we're always trying to fight but like maybe we could do something about it and it's like no like we're telling you the government is corrupt like we're not pretending and uh by the way like you have to live with this this is how it is and like that is so much more of a defeating nation like nature because it removes the hope of change uh, as opposed to like this idea in the US that we have where the politicians pretend not to be corrupt and say that they're not corrupt and 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 are very offended when you accuse them of being corrupt <laughs> uh, but but we all know it's not true yeah i loved the clip they had of vladimir putin standing there and kind of like half shrugging where he's like well, i mean what do you expect you know what and do I, you mean man like, like, i mean come on because yeah, it's not just that the government is corrupt. Is the government is corrupt in telling you we're also giving you all the narratives, so all the stuff that you're looking at, those are distractions, and the real power is happening somewhere you can't even see. So you're yeah. you'll never catch on. So don't even try. Uh, I mean, it's a little bit reminiscent of 1984, which oh my gosh, the word Orwellian has lost all meaning in the last few days. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I, I'm not talking about specifically because everybody looks at Orwell and they're like, oh, this free speech is the only thing that's in that book. Uh, but the one thing that happens in George Orwell's 1984 is gov is state uh, supported uh, anti-government groups. And in that book, they're meant to be to catch people who have revolutionary tendencies. So you join one of these secret societies that's supposed to be planning an uprising against government. And then the government eventually is like, okay, once they're sure that you're revolutionary, then they reveal that it's all been fake and now we got you. And then they try to brainwash you to not be revolutionary. This is like a level of extraction away from that, where instead of using it as a trap to catch revolutionaries, they just destroy the idea of a revolutionary 
ever being possible outside of the government involvement. So you just give up hope on ever exactly. joining a revolution. It says that it says that all of these yeah revolutionary movements are part of the government, right? Whether or not that's true or not doesn't matter. And now you're like, well, I'm not going to join a government sanctioned revolution, you know? If I'm and trying to that's, be anti-government, uh, that's all yeah. it takes. <laughs> yeah. And whether or not it's true is not as important as what it was, whether it appears it is. So, um, yeah, it, it's exactly like that. And like Trump did something similar to this, right? In 2016, he plays that, um, clip from the debates, um, where Trump is uh, standing on the stage and he's saying, I donated to all these guys. I donated to Hillary Clinton. You know, I, uh, I, I'm just part of the, uh, I, I know how to manipulate the government. Um, and all these people will do what I say when I say it, you know, uh, and the, like the moderator, the, the Fox news moderator is like, well, well, what was something specific that you asked him to do? And he's like, I donate. And then two years, three years later, I call him up and say, I need a favor. They will do it for me. You know, it's, it's not even something specific. It's just the idea that this exists is so insidious, like insidious and, uh, uh, such a, like, um, it gets its tentacles into this idea that we can actually like that the government is working and it causes, um, yeah, you can pretty much you to doubt that anything is real. Right. Definitely. Well, it also, I don't know. I think Trump's right in that sense where he's like, yeah, the government, these people are doing things to the people that give them money. And if you look at the way that we're governed, it's pretty obvious. Like who got help as soon as the pandemic happened? Yeah. He's not necessarily wrong in that sense. And I think that his populist rhetoric in his first run was a big part of why he got elected because a lot of people people who wanted to vote for bernie sanders some of them ended up voting for trump because they're like well at least he's not part of this corrupt establishment i know that hillary clinton's corrupt maybe trump isn't and obviously that's a stupid thing to but think that's now, like but, but that's that's part of the hyper normalization though is it's taking this idea and extrapolating it and saying this is true for every single person in every single case right you know nothing that anyone has ever done has been done for the right reasons they're all done it because of money you know and uh, maybe in a couple of cases for a couple of people that's true but to say that that's true always is not really true and it, again it's like it erases history and makes you not believe anything that you're seeing or anything because you think that everyone is is behind this thing and, and what it does is it creates this useful narrative of like you can't trust the government and i'm here to break stuff you know and like that's i think i think like what you're saying is is true there is an element of truth there but the the majority of like the majority of trump's success comes from the fact that he's willing to lie about anything and that he's willing to twist the truth to benefit himself and like that is the nature of this hyper normalization narrative is that you can change reality by saying it's not real right and it's important to realize that that is definitely not unique to other countries it's definitely prevalent here and the example they use is the ufo documents which that I didn't even know about this stuff. Oh my god! But what a, a mind-splitting <laughs> thing to to realize that the government would create fake documents to leak and try to cover up so that people are like, "Oh my gosh, the go the the UFOs are real!" And it's really just to hide weapons testing uh, that the government has been doing. Yeah, because if they, yeah, that's the thing. The people that are like behind something like QAnon. They are not stupid people, right? They're not, and they're very passionate people. 
if they if you were able to focus their energy the energy of storming the capital onto something useful imagine the things you could accomplish right but it's so much more useful to the people who want a stability like stability and who want to keep things the way they are keep status quo to focus them on something that does not matter and everyone knows is crazy it, because that distracts all of this energy and puts it somewhere that doesn't matter. You can just dismiss them so easily and nothing they ever do is going to matter because they're not talking about reality. They're talking about stuff they've made up. It's just like, and, and people have this nature of like believing what they want to believe, right? And so the UFO thing, all you have to do is plant the seed and then people run with it. And they say, oh my God, everything's a UFO. You're an alien. I'm an alien. Nothing's real. The government's aliens, you know, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I got tinfoil hats on. Like you spend all your time like deciphering everything through this lens and perpetuating this idea without with even like this, like the smallest hint of... um of like a of a real conspiracy necessarily right and i think the ufo documents is just a good example of like what they call in this perception management uh it's not just that the government is like oh we're, you're conveniently distracted by this thing it's that the government is going out of their way to plant these things so that for the specific purpose of distracting you doesn't matter if yes. it's true or not it's just about distracting you and honestly again it, you can get stuck in in like this conspiracy theory lens of the world but i'm sitting here watching it's like huh, that's weird how these people are able to just walk into the capitol building i wonder what's really going on that i don't know about because i'm distracted by this crazy thing that's happening in the capitol building that i you know this of course is going to take my attention so what is going on that they don't want me to know about uh which doesn't right just because i say that doesn't necessarily mean there's anything that's else that's going on but uh the fact that we know that our own government does this to us is uh makes you question everything yes exactly and like and, and, and like it taints real events too right like the real things become not what they seem because you like you can't believe that the pandemic is real because all this other stuff is going on behind the scenes and therefore like why would you believe anything that they say right and any sort of event that is that would seem to contradict um the narrative becomes subsumed by the narrative you know and this is i mean this is something that QAnon has done such a good job of but it's not necessarily unique to them any sort of conspiracy theory um has to be adaptable enough to deal with conflicting information, right? Anytime you say, okay, well, that you know, UFO is actually a weather balloon or something, like you can, all you can do is say, okay, maybe that one was a weather balloon, uh, but all the other ones were real. Or you can say, well, that's just what they told you. And because they actually did have it, right? And you have to build in that structure into your narrative to say, to take reality and filter it through this, um, this lens. And that's like the that's the the kind of amazing thing of a hyper normalized world is that you end up with a you end up with a reality that you want to believe in and are willing to stick with so desperately that anything that contradicts it becomes part of the narrative and part of the like oh it's not what you think people are saying it's this but yeah you know actually actually it makes more sense it fits with my uh, worldview if it's this right and it goes beyond just governments too because Trump's entire uh, like celebrity is based on something that's kind of a lie. I mean, he was this real estate mogul in New York, but he went bankrupt 
But when he went bankrupt, he had his name on so many buildings and he owned so many buildings and there's banks involved who wanted to make a profit that it didn't make as much sense to have him go bankrupt and publicly become known as this loser who, you know, is bad at business. It actually made more sense that even though he was broke to pretend he was rich so that his name would be more valuable. You don't want to have Trump on your building if Trump is this loser broke guy who is bad at business. No, you want to pretend that he is the the height of business, the height of luxury. So even if he doesn't have any money, you can pretend he is and and uphold the celebrity tycoon status because that is going to help you make more money at the end of the day. And that's, you know, that is just gone on. That fake persona has just gone on and on and even continues to now where people are like, well, he's he should be president because he's so good at business. And uh, I mean, you could argue that (laughs) saying that being able to stay rich while you're broke because of your celebrity is good business. But you can also say that going bankrupt is bad business. (laughs) So. Right. Well, there's lots of ways to make money, right? And just because you have a lot of money doesn't mean you're a good person. That's kind of a, that's something that I keep telling um, Jenny over and over again is like, not not that she needs to be reminding, but like. But it's something you say. uh, Yeah, there's a, uh, um, there's this idea that if you're a good person, you'll make more money or you'll be successful. Therefore, people who are successful or have lots of money are good people. It, that's right. It doesn't actually follow. Yeah, yeah. That's why Elon Musk is basically Jesus, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's why uh, Jeff kisses. Uh, you know, like he can do whatever he wants. He's the uh, he's the uh, uh, he's the epitome of good person. Well, I, I heard that Elon Musk passed him in. Uh... That's right. I guess that means he's not as good as we thought, yeah. <laughs> or he's not as good as Elon Musk. That's right. <laughs> Elon Musk helped a lady cross the street this week, and then surpassed that gate that, that that yeah pushed his stock up a right. little bit <laughs> that's so funny okay um well uh, one more thing i want to talk about and then we can talk about if there's anything else you want to we want to mention we can uh we can go to that too but the last thing i want to talk about is the internet and how he talks about um and how curtis talks about the internet and its role in this uh, world we live in now so when the internet first came about it was created by corporations to pass information to each other and to itself, basically. Um, but uh, there was this kind of revolutionary idea, and I don't know if you have that guy's name in here. Oh, um, um, yeah, Pearl? No, no, not Pearl. Pearl. Uh, no, 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 I know he, I don't have his name. You're talking about the, which one are you talking about? You're talking about the internet uh, utopian? Yes. Okay, I don't, I don't have his name. Barlow, Barlow, you have it Oh, here. Barlow, um, yeah. uh, So this guy named Barlow who uh, kind of like wrote this manifesto that said, the internet is going to be this amazing place. It's going to be a place for freedom, for unity, for like self-expression. Um, and it's going to be like this new world. Cyberspace is going to be the new space that we used to occupy. Now that our current reality is completely controlled by corporations and by governments, like this is going to be a new place to exercise freedom. Um, and this was interesting, uh, but maybe misguided. And there was a couple of hackers, Fiber Optic and Acid Freak, awesome hacker names, especially for that time. Oh, definitely. Um, These guys would definitely be MLG gamers in today's oh, uh, yeah, dude. You know, <laughs> environment. That's so funny. But they would maybe MLG gamers who have hacks. Like they would be like, oh, this guy is, uh, this guy's like, they say, oh, this guy's pissing me off. Let me, let me hack him. And then they, their whole YouTube channel would just be them like going after like people that work hard, like for like and ruining their days by hacking their, 
accounts. Right, and their names anyway. wouldn't be spelled the way they spell them in this documentary. It would be fiber underscore optic, and optic has a one instead of an I, and then XX yeah. acid freak XX, you know? They have like the, because <laughs> the originals are taken. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. Anyway, these guys were like prolific hackers, um, and they thought that um, Barlow was crazy. And what they did was they broke into um, like a fine, I guess it was a finance networking site or something like some, like sort, some of sort of credit, credit card company. Yeah, some credit credit card company yeah. or like a bank or something. And they stole Barlow's credit history and published it online. And what this did was proved that corporations were using the internet to track your moves and understand more about you. Um, and I th- oh, man, this was this was mind blowing to me because this is the same problem we're having with social media today. And he and Curtis does mention this is that. Um, like these corporations are da- gathering data about you, like, and you're basically paying them to do it. Um, and, uh, they're using that to create models of you to the better understand and control you. Um, which is, uh, I mean, exactly what's happening. So there's this kind of weird dichotomy, like the internet as this place of freedom, this is kind of this beautiful ideal. And then there's like the kind of weird reality that it, the purpose it was built for was to pass information between companies about you. And um, in fact, like it's, it's, just, it's just another system of control in a way. Yeah. He said uh, in cyberspace, there are no laws, just raw, brutal corporate power. And, um, <laughs> yes. and, I, and I came up with this quote myself. I was like, in cyberspace, no one can hear you scream. <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> That's so funny. it's like aliens. Um, yeah, in cyberspace, no, you have no rights. Right. Well, and it's, um, but I, I think it is an interesting dichotomy because like we said, the internet's use in these uprisings, uh, there is a certain like new gained freedom that comes from the internet, but there's also this bag of problems that are now created because of the internet. Yeah, so it's really both of these things at the same time, um, which I think is really, it's, it's very interesting. And then he goes a step further and he talks about how there were these uh, computer scientists who were trying to engineer like therapy techniques or something similar to it, uh, where they were trying to help people like deal with issues by like creating kind of a system or like an algorithm where you would put something in and it would tell you kind of like how, like what to do or like how to feel or something like that. And there's this guy who came up with this um, system called Eliza, originally kind of as a joke. And I'm going to play you um, like, hold on. Like the idea of Eliza was that it would um, make, was that it was a, uh, it was like a therapy machine. But what it would do is it would just reframe your statements back at you. Um, So if you you were like, I'm feeling bad today, you would tell it. It would say, why are you feeling bad today? You know, it's the classic like, but how does that make you feel right, kind of thing, right? right? Like, like it's, or like the why question of like constantly just asking why. And it, it, it causes you to get deeper into the, the thing without any effort from the thing itself. And it, it's just proof that like we're actually not that complicated as people like or as, a, as, a, as like a as a consciousness. Like if we give if you give two people that have the same sim, like similar life experience, the same stimulus, they'll have the same joke. They'll come up with the same response. Oh, I hate when I do that, dude. You see that on TikTok all the time. I'm, like, I'm so funny, <laughs> and then I realize I'm not. <laughs> um, here's a quote from the documentary about Eliza. What Eliza showed was that in an age of individualism, what made people feel secure was having themselves reflected back to them just like in a mirror. And this is extrapolated and 
even more prevalent today with social media because we have created bubbles around ourselves um, uh, to kind of insulate ourselves from reality, but also from other people too, right? And to say, like, these people, I don't want to hear what they have to say. They don't matter. Um, I only want to hear what people I like have to say. And this is, this is a natural thing I think that people do. And I think this experiment with Eliza kind of proves that. But it's also part of this idea that like, you're not part of the wider world. You're just a world of, uh, within yourself. And that as an individual, you are, um, the only thing that matters is like uh, a world that makes sense to you, I guess, or like your own experience and your own contributions. And so seeing things that look like those things reflected back at you is very satisfying. And it's very, uh, you know, it helps contribute to this idea of like the world around you is constructed. Yeah, no. And, and I think that that's definitely the tendency towards uh, like how people navigate social media. I do wish that this documentary had spent, again, I, I'm pitching this Netflix 10 part series to this thing because I think you could do way more with social media. Uh, I mean, I know that things have progressed since 2016, but I still think in 2016, you could have been pretty comprehensive about the way people use the internet and how that affects their worldview. Because um, they talked about, they said one line about it. They're like, angry people click more. And I was like, okay, tell us more about that. Because that's a really <laughs> important uh, thing that at this point is is like common knowledge on the internet is that the most engaging emotion is anger. Uh, and, and that's huge when it comes to how people you know, use the internet, especially when it comes to politics. Absolutely. It's, um, I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's like a, it's just the kind of thing that like nobody intended to happen, I guess, you know, like Facebook wasn't setting out to create these kind of bubbles, you know, that people lived in. They, it, it's, I mean, it's more explicit goal was to try and get people to interact with each other more. Right. And to connect um, more easily. But what the, but our own natural like psychology combined with the tool, like the imperfect tool of Facebook caused us to like filter out reality that we didn't agree with and only keep in stuff that we did and makes it so much harder to understand other people and understand the world um again it's like it's this simplicity it's this sim simplification of the world um for your own benefit well do you feel like there's some sort of personal advocacy that could be done to try to combat that because i once i uh kind of came across the idea of like the liberal echo chamber a few years yeah. back i made i went out and i was like okay well let me try to at my best to hear all sides and like as much as it pains me and causes me daily discomfort i follow stephen crowder i follow tim pool i read their nuclear takes that to me are just like <laughs> sear my eyes every time i have to read what they say but it's because i'm interested in having an idea of what the opposite side is saying. And I'm not saying that I don't still get trapped in echo chambers of my own ideas, but um, I at least feel like I'm giving the other side a chance. Um, and I don't know if I hear that as necessarily something being advocated for. Um, I don't know. I also, I'm not trying to sound holier than that. I was like, well, everyone else is in their own echo chamber, but I'm over here with the total picture. Uh, but I don't know if that's something like as some sort of a solution to try to encourage people to, to broaden that. Like I think, um, I think in general, that's probably true, but I'm becoming more and more like convinced that these tools themselves are broken in a, some sort of fundamental way. Um, and that you're not, 
like no matter how many different people you listen to or something, you're still not going to get the full picture and you're not going to, it's not going to be the same as if you were there or if you had, you know, done something else. And maybe that was never the case. You know, I mean, we think about like how disinformation is so rampant today, but like we just didn't have as good, uh, we didn't have as good of a database to check like like you know 40 years ago right, right? right fact checkers worked so much harder to prove even the most minor things than people do today and they probably got stuff wrong and we never know about it you know of course there's also this uh you know actual concerted effort to confuse and to um like uh, destroy people's trust in experts in science uh, that's also happening but um is more prevalent and more powerful than it's ever been before. But like the, even when we were pretty, even when we all kind of agreed that what reality was like, what, what was real, we still, uh, you know, we still lied to each other. We still lied about what was going on. We just look at like um, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, you know, the proposed narrative of that uh, as like um, kind of a deterrent um, uh, for, or the only way that Japan would surrender is, is, patently untrue and yet that was the narrative that was pushed forever by everyone oh yeah you know, this was not this is not really that uh um this is not questioned until you know people started looking into it more recently even or 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 people wanted to find other opinions um and maybe there were people out there that were like ah this is you know this is wrong for many reasons but they weren't the majority narrative they weren't the people that uh people were uh trusting yeah i mean once again public education andy here with uh like remembering in school when we learned about that and yeah even you know i'm not that old learning it you know at 12 14 years ago was that yeah we did it because it was justified and if we didn't do it it would have been a bad thing so we needed to do it right and japan deserved it and uh obama's kind of a traitor for having apologized to be honest (laughs) (laughs) right and it's It's just a um yeah so like again like we don't we've never really been very good at uh understanding what what truth well to be fair those are not opinions i actually have i want to make sure i don't get clipped here that that, yeah yeah. that's what i was taught and i don't agree with that (laughs) the um we like we we never really been very good at understanding what truth is or what is true necessarily, and even when there was only one or two narratives, um, we still weren't necessarily those weren't necessarily right either. Now there's so much more, and it's so much more complicated, and so much harder to figure out. Um, but at the same time, you know you have you're more empowered to find that information yourself. And you have more of those tools at your disposal than ever before. So it's like, it's more possible for you to be more discerning now, even though there's more to sort through. Um, I don't know. I, I, I keep thinking about this. You know Cody Ko on, uh, on, on YouTube, right? Of course, of course. He did this series on uh, this game show called The Box. Did you watch this? No, I didn't. Um, it's like this. It's like this really cheap j- dating show that somebody put together. I think it's one of those ones that does like the, uh, uh, you know, six liberals and one a conservative are in a box. Like, can they figure out which ones who's different, whatever? Right. Um, it's like the same. I think it's the same like p- people that do that. Anyway, the idea is that they have two people um, sitting across to each other, um, and there's a button in the middle, oh, and uh, if you press the uh, button, then that you reject the other person. And um, they have to leave, and a new person comes in. And the the people that don't press the button uh, for like like I don't know like ten minutes or something, uh, they will go on a date together 
and then they'll, um, you know, presumably do something together or something. And there was like a bunch of these episodes, to, uh, but at the end, there was one woman who like figured out what the game was and she just started rejecting people like, um, like she would, she would, she would act super nice and she would be like really engaged and everything. She wouldn't be standoffish or anything. She'd be like, oh, that's so cool or whatever. And then she would, she would coldly reject them and hit the button and have them walk off. Right. Yeah. And she had figured out like by uh, probably watching like one other person play the game, like, oh, like if I want to win and get the clout and the $200 that are going to give me for being here today, like <laughs> um, all I have to do is like play the game. Right. And the same thing is true for like Twitter and Facebook. Like this is an imperfect system. This is not a good way for people to find someone to date. You know, this is a contrived game show that somebody came up with to get people to click on things. You right? Like the idea that this is a useful way to find like people you want to date is completely not the point. Yes. And the same thing is true for these systems that we're using to communicate, right? Like we think of Twitter and Facebook as being this uh, like perfect idea or something like oh it's like this it's this way of connecting with people it's a way to find your friends or something jack dorsey says he discovered twitter he didn't invent twitter which is like you know the most pretentious right. jack dorsey thing you could say yeah. but um maybe there's a point there but the point is that like you didn't get it on the first try jack you didn't get it on the first try mark like there's there's a lot of issues we have with this system as a whole and the idea that like oh if I just follow enough people on Twitter, um, I'll get like an accurate idea of what the world is, is like assuming that Twitter has figured it out. <laughs> That's a good point. And also that the loudest voices for all the political opinions are the correct ones or the most yes. accurate or the ones I should be even listening to if I want to get the larger picture. And I think that's that's definitely worth clarifying because um, I mean, even before I was uh, we recorded today, I was on Twitter and I saw a tweet and it was like, um, the the gender wage gap is especially bad because what do men even have to spend money on? And I was like, <laughs> so, and of course I'm I'm a cisgendered male, so I'm gonna that's directed at me. And I'm like, first off, it's actually not. The whole point is that this is Twitter. The reason this is popping off on Twitter is because there's a meta for making fun of the opposite gender. It's yes. not to be taken seriously, and if yes. you do take it seriously, you're being you're being punked. So, um, and that's the thing. It's like. Twitter, just because that that sentence resonated, doesn't mean that there's any inherent truth. Doesn't it mean does not mean that it should even have been said. It just <laughs> is playing the twi the game of Twitter yes. and winning. Exactly. So yeah, I think I, yeah, that's I think that's really good to point out though is that these systems are very imperfect and just like being rich doesn't mean you're a good person. Just because a website is popular doesn't mean that it's good. But that's wow. the thing too. Like, I, I just thinking about like tw Trump's Twitter being deactivated and stuff. Like, Twitter and Facebook have occupied this space, and I think a lot of people's minds it's, it's living rent free in people's minds. I know that's your favorite phrase oh right now. Oh my gosh! And they've kind of operated under this assumption that they are right and that right. they are some sort of public square or like the idea that or like you hear this on uh the rabbit hole um podcast that um the new york times put together uh, from from youtube from susan wojcinski she says that something along the lines that uh, if we want to make sure the most popular or like the most credible sources have a presence on youtube implying that if you don't exist on youtube you don't really exist and if you don't exist on twitter you don't really exist it's right. like 
who are you guys again? You guys are just a, a like a tech company that a lot of people use. You know, the idea that like, oh, I'm doing everyone a service by leaving this dangerous man up on our platform to incite violence. Like this is a this is a public good. You know, I, this is for the historical record. Like get fucked, Twitter. You are not that important. You know, Got you're him. just yeah. you're you're just an app that people use. Like this idea that you're some sort of bastion of free speech or like that you don't have arbitrary rules about like what can be said and what can't be said is ridiculous. And like, yeah, I, I, I hate this idea that like um, that Donald Trump not having a Twitter account is censorship or something because like Twitter is not that important. <laughs> it's not yeah. it's not the only place that exists, I guess. I like that take. I mean, this is definitely something that's very much being like discussed right now. Um, and obviously would have been included in this documentary had it been made four years <laughs> <Yeah>. later. <laughs> um, all right, Joey, one last thing we need to talk about. I think we'd be remiss if we made it through our entire podcast about hypernormalization if we didn't talk about our man, Muammar Gaddafi. Okay, the, oh, yeah. <laughs> the leader of Libya. This guy, let me just, this is something that I thought of when I was watching how he was, how he interacted with other world leaders is if Muammar Gaddafi was like a Yu-Gi-Oh card or a magic card, his <laughs> ability would be that you can use him as one of your own monsters or your opponent's monsters. That's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> because, because he, he'll do whatever gives him the most relevance right? that is so funny <laughs> and i i had no idea who this guy was i specifically remember gaddafi when i was in high school because that was like something that we thought was funny to say we're like gaddafi you know because his name sounded foreign like, <laughs> that's as far as our little pea brains could take it um but he was such an important player in the world stage uh through just wanting to be a part of the things that were going on right just wanting to be included and taken seriously uh, but he's also a enabler of this whole hyper normalization because he was always used as the simple answer for a more complex situation yes uh, yeah and he was yeah he's the, he's the perfect scapegoat especially because he agreed to be the scapegoat and it doesn't like it doesn't actually require you to call up Gaddafi and say hey we're going to say this about you you should say this it just requires like it just says oh, here's an opportunity, you know, like the U.S. is such a powerful entity in the world. If they're pointing their, you know, their eye of Sauron toward me, I, <laughs> you know, I should start dancing. People will pay attention. <laughs> let me, yeah, let me start spitting some facts about the third universal theory. Right. Uh, which I wish they went into a little bit more, although I'm I sure it's too. probably not very simple. Uh, <laughs> but it, it, like, I did a little bit of research and I really do mean a little, but app apparently it's his, uh, you know, he, he believed that capitalism and socialism had both been proven invalid. And mm. this was his answer. This was the third way that is supposed to be like the, the one that actually works. Um, I don't know what exactly that means, but uh, that was kind of what he was pushing for. Yeah, I didn't really look into it either, because after I watched this, I was like, I think I need to digest the information that's in front of me yeah, um, yeah. before I try to figure out anything else. Well, that's um, I mean, that was the other thing, too, just going off that idea. Like, again, this 10 part Netflix series. You know, hit me yeah, up. one part's uh, uh, the third, the the third universal theory. Perfect. They, well, they could, yes, they could talk about that. They could also talk about Hamas and Hezbollah. Like th these are groups with ideologies that exist for a reason, and we they kind of just sprung on us in this documentary. You wish you could have gotten a little bit more background on them, like we got on our man uh, Gaddafi. But um, but yeah, I mean, he's just such a 
great example of hypernormalization because it's so easy to blame random terrorism on Gaddafi planned it, especially yes. when Gaddafi is ready and willing to say, yeah, I did plan it. Right. And any sort of thing that happens, like you can just say Gaddafi did it because he has no allies, right? He's, he's isolated and everything. I actually have a quote for this out. Let me play it for you. Libya had were less uh, downside consequences, if you will. There's less Arab support for Gaddafi. We figured there would be less Soviet support for Gaddafi. There's no question but what Libya was more vulnerable than Syria and Iran. Was a soft and target. that is certainly an element, uh, of course. So it's just like a, um, they, they couldn't attack Syria uh, because even though Syria had done it, uh, or, or had been uh, contributing to that. Um, instead, they had to, um, they, they were like, let's attack somebody else. We have to respond, so we'll respond to whoever we can respond to. Um, hold on, let me get this guy's name. This, this, this quote is from Robert Oakley, um, who was a director of the State Department Office of Combating Terrorism in 1985. And uh, he doesn't talk about this directly, but like, isn't this exactly what happened with the war in Iran? You know, like, they... They were like a different country, like with harboring a different group of like uh, of people, attacked um, uh, New York City in 9/11, um, and uh, we were like, okay, we're gonna fight a different country instead, and we're gonna go to war with them because uh, people can't tell the difference between yeah. Iran and Iraq, and uh, Iran's got some nice oil. If you have, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Have you seen no. their oil reserves? Right. Hubba, no, hubba. It, it, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, he's used to reinforce whatever narratives you want. Like, for instance, him giving up his quote unquote weapons of mass destruction. It's proof. It's undeniable proof that invading the Middle East works to get rid right. of weapons of mass destruction. Undeniable. Right. You can't argue with me now that Gaddafi has given up his weapons of mass destruction, even though he never had any. <laughs> but the fact that he can say that, he's will he's even saying it. Yeah. Why would he why would he say that if it wasn't true? So uh obviously <laughs> invading these countries works. It's the right it's the right idea and uh that's the narrative we can run with, this hypernormal narrative, because it's simple, it makes sense. It's easy. Yeah. And I think the the prev like the prominence of Gaddafi especially is proof of this this idea in action, right? It's saying, let's just pretend this is true and see what happens. And and it worked. It it worked perfectly. Um and it's just and then it, it continued to work from there because once you have that narrative built up, right, you can use it to support other ones, just like you said. And, and from there, you can build even a bigger case, right? And it's all based on this lie, basically. And yeah. it doesn't matter because it's, uh, it seems true or it, people acted as if it was true and therefore it was as good as true. Well, and Gaddafi did have some opinions that uh, he had some good takes and on certain things like he is uh wanting an investigation on jfk and uh mlk like and and basically trying to stand up for oppressed people around the world like that's pretty good yeah but, him reaching out to like the black people in uh in, in the US, essentially it's such yeah. a smart idea <laughs> yeah no and, and you know so there's some things about him to like but i think his willingness to play the part that these world powers wanted him to uh just like to promote his own profile is uh you know he got what he deserved in the end uh um, it's like he, he died with no friends it's uh, like uh yeah well because he didn't have any he only pretended to right yeah and his great like his greatest relationship was with the u.s who was only pretending 
to use like to you just to use him as far as i could use him right and exactly what you said earlier right as soon as he became not useful as an enemy he became useful as an ally and so they were like oh we're gonna reform Gaddafi again it was this stretching of hyper normalization <laughs> to say like okay like how do we do this you know how do we reinvent Gaddafi to be more uh, likable and they like did all this stuff to do it and it worked you know it worked perfectly oh this guy went into redemption arc we, we freaking f figured it out you know and he's just sitting there <laughs> like uh yeah, like whatever you guys say, you know, it's still like at the at the detriment to his own people. Right. He's putting his own people at risk by like going directly against the U.S. Uh, or at least saying he is and, and um, by agreeing to like like partner with the U.S. is still dangerous because you just don't know what they're going to do to you. You know, they don't know whether they're going to set up some sort of like military base in your country and start terrorizing your citizens. You know, like it's it's a uh, um, it's it's terrifying. For my turn, I play Momar Gaddafi, the Libyan dictator hero. His special ability allows me to treat him as one of my own creatures or my opponent's creature. <laughs> now I use justify foreign interventionalism. <laughs> <laughs> and I end my turn. <laughs> this game has gotten even more complicated than magic. <laughs> okay. I think, I mean, there's plenty more to discuss. This is a very long documentary, but I think that's where I, I think we can bring it to a close here. Yeah. So just like we do at the end of all of our episodes, we are going to deliver our ratings. Joey, what rating do you want to give to hypernormalization? I give this movie one migraine. <laughs> <laughs> Is that fair? I don't know. I liked it. <laughs> I, I liked it too, but I still felt like I, it's one of those things where you're just like, like your brain is full, you know, you're just yeah. like, oh my God. It's just like, it is, it's not this crushing weight as much as it's just like all of these things swimming around inside your head. It really does feel like, I saw this uh, quote on Wikipedia from, from someone said that, um, uh, it feels like Adam Curtis had a bunch of had 20 tabs open and had just gone on like a crazy <laughs> Wikipedia binge and was trying to explain to you all this stuff at the same time. That's funny. It, do, it does feel apt. that way. It feels that way watching it too. Okay. Well, I give this movie an encore presentation that covers 2016 to 2020. Nice. Because I, I do love this format. I think it's really engaging and I would love to watch uh, his take on the, the that period of time. So there you have it. That's hypernormalization. Joey, what's next on Affable Chat? Next, we're doing something equally as engaging and as thought-provoking. We're doing Flock of Dudes. Literally starring, the starring uh, Crystalia. <laughs> yeah, and other comedians. It is literally half the length of the movie of this documentary we just watched the only difference is the length obviously still just as enlightening and engaging uh yeah that is going to be interesting uh so we'll, we're going to be talking about that next uh please subscribe to us on spotify itunes or wherever you get your podcasts and wherever you listen to us make sure you leave us a review it really does help us grow you can reach us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at AffableChat, or send us an email, affablechat at gmail.com. We also have a YouTube channel where we post episodes of the podcast sometimes and other things as well, things that aren't about movies. Affable Chat is live on Tuesday night, 7 p.m. Eastern on Twitch. That's twitch.tv slash affablechat. That is going to do it for this episode. For Affable Chat, I'm Benjamin. And I'm Joey. Thanks for listening. <laughs>